This season is sponsored by Future Farm, the revolutionary meatless meat food company from Brazil. They're cooking up products which can match and exceed our juicy meaty favourites on taste, texture and sizzling flavour using only 100% natural ingredients. My favourite? There's too much choice. But if I had to choose, hands down it would be the future meatballs and future mints in my classic lasagna dish. And get this, they're standing up for some pretty big things too, like reclaiming the Amazon rainforest back by fostering the movement towards GMO-free and deforestation-free products in place of those that are unethical and illegal. Definitely not just another plant-based brand, hey? Very up my street. The full Future Farm range is available now at Sainsbury's. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, industry insiders, and people who, well, just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and favorite tastes along the way. This week, I'm joined by comedian, actor, and writer, Russell Kane. Best known for his hilarious stand-up comedy, sell-out live tours, and fronting many well-known TV programs around the globe, Kane won the main prize at the Edinburgh Comedy Awards in 2010. He then went on to win the Melbourne Comedy Festival Barry's Award, the first comedian to ever win the two in one year. As a multi-award winner, he is also a fellow podcaster, fronting his newly named show, Man Baggage, where he and his celebrity guests unpack the emotional baggage that men spend their whole lives avoiding. I definitely have a few things to say about that. It's a pleasure to have my first ever comedian onto the podcast. Russell, thank you for coming on. This week, I'm joined by comedian, actor and writer, Russell Kane. Best known for his hilarious stand-up comedy, sell-out live tours, and fronting many well-known TV programmes around the globe, Kane won the best prize at the Edinburgh Comedy Awards in 2010. He then went on to win the Melbourne Comedy Festival Barry's Award, the first comedian to ever win the two in one year. As a multi-award winner, he is also a fellow podcaster, fronting his newly named show, Man Baggage, where he and his celebrity guests unpack the emotional baggage that men spend their whole lives avoiding. I definitely have a few things to say about that. It's such a pleasure to have my first comedian on the podcast. Russell, thank you for coming on. Hello, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Weirdly busy for um, for a you know a planet destroyed by the fact that someone fried a bat. No disrespect to the culinary <laughs> listeners, but I really would stay off the bat marinara. <laughs> really, I quite like it when it's fried. Mm. It was the side order of pangolin that did it. <laughs> I can already see how this episode is going to go. It's going to be yeah. you just like cracking jokes, and I'm just uh, yeah. Um, Obviously, it's been a bit of a crazy year. Um, you know, how have you been getting on? You had to obviously postpone your tour. Is that back on? Like, where do we stand with everything? 
Well, actually, I was one of the lucky ones. My tour ran throughout 2019. It previewed in 2018 and all of the big juicy rooms that I wanted to do were all done by January 2020. I then added a third a third leg of more sort of boutique bespoke theatres. Annoyingly, the ones I really love playing. So you sort of, it's not just about size, but they tend to be three to 700 seats. Those really nice theatres in cool towns. They're the gigs I lost. Will I ever add them again? Probably not. It's a truthful answer. I've given up now. Postpone, postpone. But what I'll probably do now is, yeah. um, as I say, lucky for me, the the, the mortgage paying stuff was done. So um, I probably will just modularly add um, one-off dates here and there. I do call them Russell Kane and Friends where I have like a couple of support acts and I do an hour. And I can add maybe one of those or four of those. And if someone eats a bat again, it doesn't matter because I'm only losing four gigs. Russell, have you had breakfast today? No, I've not. I have not eaten a single thing since I woke up. God's honest, not a morsel. Wow. Okay. It's been are absolutely in, crazy. Are you into that intermittent fasting life? I don't. I eat when hungry. Is my revolutionary diet? Is are you hungry? Then eat. And when you do mm. eat, eat a medium amount of things a moderate amount of the time. It's a revolutionary way of eating called medium things, medium amounts of time. It works as well with alcohol and exercise. It's a, it's a crazy, people don't want to hear it. I mean, what you really want to do is eat 100% fat or do a thousand reps in five minutes. All of that's bollocks and you'll probably get osteoporosis or a fatty liver. The solution to life is a moderate amount of things, a moderate amount of time, except laughter and happiness, which you should squeeze in as much as possible. There we go. Even oh. Roy agrees, my Siamese. There we go. Um, Russell was introducing me to his harem of cats. Yes, I've got. That's Roy has got Siamese genes. So he's got this big bellowing voice and I, they're in the same room with me at the moment. because I'm trying to introduce the resident cat, Roy, who's only one to the new dot of a Devon Rex who's four months, which is normally a one to two hour process. But we're seven days in and I've still got that howling. So you were born in Enfield and you were raised in Essex. I want to know about your life growing up. You know, was food important? Who was cooking? What was on the kitchen table? Kind of paint the picture for me. So I come from a very archetypal working class uh, background. I lived at the three possible tiers of working classness, the sheltered accommodation for mother and baby, followed by the council flat, followed by the council house. In fact, there's a fourth level was introduced in the 80s by Margaret Thatcher, which is your working class, but you own your house. That never existed before 1981. So that new class was created, uh, of which uh, my dad stuck us in. We bought our own council house. Not only that, but it was semi-detached, which is massive. If you don't know why that's relevant, if you're in a terraced council house, there's not much you can do once you've bought it. If you're end of terrace... You can build at the side of it. You can literally uh, experience embourgeoisement of the bricks and mortar. So we had three bedrooms. We had a swimming pool in the back garden. We had pillars overhanging the uh, porch area. So I just thought I had no indication or um, intimation that we were working class. didn't know anything like that. I just thought I was the richest kid in the school. I thought I was like some Californian prince because I had a swimming pool in my back garden. The reason I mentioned that... You actually had a swimming pool? My dad dug out, so we hired a digger and dug a 20-foot-long swimming pool in the garden. Wow, okay. Um, So the reason I mention all that is it was sort of our similar attitude to food as well. So when you're a white working-class child of right-wing dad, um, you tend to be... egg and chips if you're up north 
Um, but if you live in a city, it can be different and you get the weird interbreeding. I would describe my dad as BMP manifesto in one hand, Papadom in the other, because despite yourself, even if you are a, a man born in the 1940s or 50s with right-leaning tendencies, you've grown up soaked in the smells of London, Manchester, Leeds, wherever you've grown up. So spices, flavour, t- the takeaway at the end of the week, which country should we travel to with our palate today, boy? Um, that was very uh, very much at odds with my dad's kind of, the country's being overtaken by foreigners. I don't know how he resolved those in his head, but he did somehow. So my mum was the daily cook, if you like, um, because dad was dragging himself in through the door. A very, very hard manual job, a sheet metal engineer and a lagger. A lagger puts the insulation on the outside of pipes and boiler rooms. He was fucked every night of his life. So my mum would be your shepherd's pie, your chilli con carne, your spag bowl lady. But my dad would now and again do the big display cooking on a Saturday with, with a thousand ingredients from the cookbook. But the fascination with Indian food, the absolute intoxication and, and love affair with, um, I should probably say, South Asian cooking, having educated myself. But we would call it Indian food, even though, of course, it was Bangladeshi food we were eating 90% of the time, was just immediate. I mean, I've got, I can remember my first curry aged five. I can remember the restaurant. I remember what it was called. I remember what I ordered. I remember sat there and it was like someone switched something on in my head. It was partly how obsessed my dad was with Indian food. Uh, and my mum catching that. And ever since, I mean, that's my favourite thing to cook. I cook with it all the time. My, my, my spice cupboard is is ridiculous. There's everything in there. Methi, fenugreek, cumin, cumin seeds, all both types of cardamom pod, ground cardamom pod, black cardamom, green cardamom. You name wow. it, it's in, it's in there. Ghee, butter, oil, the lot. I love Indian cooking. It was a massive part of my childhood. And the way we celebrated a birthday was not a new bike. It was whatever you want to order at the Akash boy you order it. And that was a that was basically a free pass that I'd be allowed to order King Prawns, which is <laughs> the, the Rolex of our food yeah. childhood. So, okay. Um, so, so what was that dish that you remember ordering? What was that order? Chicken korma. Chicken korma was the safe way to go with a, with a, a five-year-old, obviously, because it's, mm. it's that stereotype with a kid that they don't eat chili, they don't like heat. They want a nice, simple, creamy type flavour. So that was a chicken korma, which was my dish for a while. Then we moved on what was called a house curry, which just meant a plain chicken curry without spice in it. And then as I got into my teens, I would dip a bit of jalfrezi or or maybe uh, the madras that my mum was having. And I would taste a bit of vindaloo and think, oh, that was... Or the karai was one of my favourite dishes. Don't get drunk and order a chicken korai because you'll get a chicken curry. Make sure you say korai chicken to the, the way to understand <laughs> you. It comes up. The korai is actually yeah. the name of the, of the mini wok it's cooked in. And it comes oh. sizzling out of the kitchen with all the, the chilies, peppers and mushrooms, almost like a brown pulp around it. The sizzling korai. Can't get it as a takeaway. It's pointless. The same as a shazlik. Pointless as a takeaway. What's the point? Um, I mean, my dad used to love the theatre. We'd be sat there, tummy rumbling. It's working class um, protocol to starve yourself during the day, to maximise the feed. And we would sit there and we, the kitchen, we'd always have the same table. So the kitchen was over my dad's shoulder with the sort of latticed window. And we'd hear the tsst and he'd be like, that's ours, boy. That's our food. So we could tell by the sound that the chaslik, which is a long black, super hot tray with all the chicken on it, dry dish, 
uh, just onions and peppers comes out with like a meat sauna coming off it that fills the restaurant and all the amateur curry eaters with their boring kormas and chicken curries like what's that what have they ordered and my dad would just sit there with pride the steam rushing over him and then we'd all sort of ravage at it like lion cubs so God, I'm, yeah. I've, I've never no. had someone talk so eloquently and so like passionately about like Indian takeaway. This is insane. You know yeah. more than most like Indian people I know. You look That's like big. it's insane. Well, of, co- of course, and depending on which part of the country you're in, um, yeah. when you say Indian, I guarantee that the restaurant in your high street, particularly if you're in a regional town, will be Bangladeshi. Mm. The chef will be from Silet or Dhaka. It's slightly different styles of cooking and they're always dead impressed when you know the difference. Uh, if you're maybe from Manchester or the North, it will still be a Muslim chef, but you're more likely to be from Pakistan and it's still a very similar type of cooking, bold flavours, lots of oil. Uh, but if you live in a Ponzi part of the world like London uh, or Edinburgh, you might discover what they call North Indian, which just means Indian. Mm. proper Indian food if you like if you're being a snob if I was a Hindu snob I would say that and it's a it's a more sort of fragrant lighter style of cooking the same flavors this is garam masala and all that business but it's less like thick pulverized onion sauce cooked in the oil which I love but I also now love my Indian cooking my Nepalese cooking my Sri Lankan food I love all Mm. of those Mm. how hot can you go pretty hot um I, I've, I say I've bell curved it. I've come back down a level um, from what uh, from where I was. I've come back to enjoying the flavour. I quite like the interplay of hot and sweet. So if you're in Bangladeshi world, that would be like a dansak. It does mean a different thing in Indian Indian. A dansak is that the lentils are in the base of the sauce with the onions. Um, so it's thickened with the, the red. You'd normally use a red split lentil and that would be thickened. And then you put a bit of pineapple or sweetness in there with the hot chilies. something for everyone in there. Salon's wow. another nice one with the sweetness. It's called chicken salon or you can have prawn salon and it would have the coconut in there too. Have you been salon to India? being the old name for Sri Lanka. I have, yeah. I've been to Kerala. I've, I um, love Kerala. One of my that's favorite went on our, um, in India. We went there on our honeymoon, funnily enough. Oh, we, wow. for, our honeymoon, for our honeymoon... Um, not a honeymoon, sorry, our conception moon. We said, let's go away and make a baby. And it worked. We went to Mumbai and Kerala. Oh, Came back beautiful. pregnant, exactly as planned. And I've been to, in in a previously, uh, went to the one that's not really India, it's Portugal, what's it called? Goa. Goa, that's it, the Portuguese yeah. one, where you, can, yeah. where you can order pork and stuff and it blows yeah. your mind. Yeah, and you can go raving and for five days and not come home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's really interesting, like to cross to cross to cross Nando's with a Vindaloo at Goa. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so, what I really want to know in terms of like your career, like, did you always want to get into comedy? Like, how do you become a comedian? Is it just one of those things where you're like you're with your mates and you just seem to be the funny one, and then like you make a career out of it? There's uh, well, I think if you've got another comedian on here, you get a completely different answer. A lot of the comedians, very successful and otherwise, it doesn't seem to be linked to success, have always been obsessed with comedy, watched it as kids, get their mum and dad driving up to the Edinburgh Festival when they were 15. That's what I want to do. How can I get on the boards? Just had a passion for it as a craft. Some of the best comedians you can think of are like that Daniel Kitson, Russell Howard. Um, uh, um, yeah, just all of the all of the, the top ones, Sarah Millican, people like that. Actually, I don't know if Sarah did have a childhood passion for stand-up. I shouldn't say that. But uh, and then there are people like me. I mean, it's just, I'm not trying to get the working-class violin out here, but 
I didn't have a poor childhood. I had a swimming pool. I had a great childhood. We went on holiday to Spain. It was great. But ultimately, we didn't like go to the museum and look at paintings at the weekend or which play. You know, let's try something different. Let's go watch Stan. It just wasn't. It did not exist on my planet. It's like me talking to you about an element you've never heard of from another planet. It's, it's a pointless conversation. So I got all the way to 1920 without even realising there were posh people that had better shit culturally and economically. Once I did, I was like, I'm fucking having some of that. Uh, so I went back and restarted my education, came out with this first in English, age 20. To, I was 25 by the time I graduated because I had to pay for my own fucking degree, boy. Um, so I, I'd saved up, paid for my own degree, got the best grade in my year. But I went to a university without a stand-up society. So I was still that kid you just described, the funny one, always mm-hmm. making people laugh, always the, uh, the one. Uh, I was five foot ten, never had any muscles, always had a, an amazing girlfriend, always had, always been funny, always been able to make women laugh, men laugh, old people laugh, babies laugh. That's the way I was at school. It's the way I've always been. But to me, comedy is Jimmy Jones, Jim Davison, Bernard Manning or Victoria Woods, something that's just lame shit that I'm not into. Just mm. totally bypassed me uh, as, a, as a thing. I thought the Edinburgh Festival was ballet and dickheads in tights and people painting and doing feminist speeches on street corners. Just another world I, hadn't, I didn't have time for. I had to yeah. catch up. I had to catch up from scratch. I had to read all of these fucking things that no one had ever told me about. Jane Austen, through to Zola, uh, up in the philosophy section, you got Kant and Schopenhauer. I had to start from scratch. I didn't have time for the fripperies of of stand-up. I had to grow my brain artificially with an average IQ from day dot. Uh, but starting at 21 instead of at 11. Most people get that revelation at 11. They find the library and I'm not like the other kids. And I was in the corner and I started reading. None of that shit. I just smoked weed and was a loser till I was 20 and then bang, someone switched me on. So I was so busy catching up, I missed everything. Then I'm in this ad agency, winning pitches. I'm now senior copywriter. I'm 25 years old, earning a good income. First person in my family to get an A-level, then a degree first person to be paid to think in my family and I've got like 25 old cousins someone says to me you're so funny why don't you try stand-up and that's when I googled I literally googled stand-up comedy and Edinburgh festival and I I sort of connected the thing I'd vaguely heard of like um you know your Rick Mail and all that stuff that did the young ones I didn't realize they were comedians I knew what alternative comedy was but I thought it was Blackadder and the young ones you know you mm. you could stand there with a mic and then I suppose it's that timing thing around about this time was it 2005 by now Live at the Apollo starts on TV, which is Jack D hosting with only modern comedians on. It's like people just being funny about their life. I'm like, pretty sure I do that in the office every day. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to show off here. I'm just trying to make the story short for you. I'm the funniest person I know. So I just, fuck it. I Googled stand-up comedy. I Googled London, clicked the first link, phoned the first club, said, how do you do it? How does it work? And they said, right, you just come and do it unpaid on a Wednesday. We have loads of people. They queue up. They get booed off. It's like a game. Come along and try it. So that's it. It's that easy. And the rest is history. Except I didn't get booed off. I was good at it. And I started winning winning all these competitions. And then I found this other level, this sort of high speed thing, which solved my nerves. I mean, I'm very high energy anyway. But once I poured that into my nerves, it produced this sort of wild sort of thing, which isn't an artifice. That is actually me, worryingly. Then I started to win big things and win the Perrier of that fucking thing behind me over there. Uh, Once I won that in 2010, that was it. You know, I was out of a job and I thought, shit, I've got to go for it. I mean, the thing is, right, is that, like, I'd I'd like to say that, well, we all would like to think that we're funny, right? You know, I mean, 
I'd say that I'm a little bit sarcastic, which I don't know if that's the, like the lowest form of humour, possibly. But um, you know, <laughs> it isn't. How do you... It isn't. <laughs> laughing at fart, laughing at farts is lower. I... Oh God! Well, then I'm really rock bottom. <laughs> yeah, so to speak. But it's like, how do you know if you're genuinely funny? Because I do think there's like a difference between like being the joker in like your friendship group to actually getting yeah. on stage and presenting yourself as a comedian, like. I, yeah. Again, I think I could be funny with my group of girls and whatever, but getting up on stage would just—I just fall flat. Um, well, I get asked this a lot by aspiring comics, on normally by DM. I call it the DM shortcut hunters. And uh, <laughs> the truth of it is, if I said to you, if you're like, "I'm really got a strong arm, I can throw the javelin furthest in the school," but how do I know if I'm going to be the furthest at the regional finals? I'd be like. Well, we could go to the regional finals and throw a javelin. And go and try. If it, if it, fall, if it falls short, then you're just someone who's good at javelin at school. Mm. It's no it's no different. The beauty of comedy, as opposed to the other worlds I'm always trying to get into, I write, I'm working on scripts, I've been writing all morning, I'm working on a novel, is yes, there's good novels and bad novels, but ultimately it comes down to the judgment of an editor, bit of luck, whether a public gets behind one book or the other, whether you're a Harry Potter or a forgotten thing. Uh, whereas stand-up, much more democratic. Walk on to 300 people. I could literally download an app on my phone that measures decibels and record you and the comedian after you and tell you objectively who produced the most laughter noise. I can't tell you who's the most innovative, who's the most nose-in-the-air, breaking boundaries and postmodern. And I personally couldn't give a fuck. As long as you're not racist, offensive and boring, who's the funniest? That's all I care about. Yeah. I don't draw a distinction between Michael McIntyre and Stuart Lee, and it really irritates me, the snobs that do. Mm. Uh, laughter is something other. It's uh, Babies do it. There's not many things babies do. Babies do fuck all, but they do smile and laugh, shit, eat, breathe. There's only a few things that we're born with, and laughter's one of them. So if you have uh, 50 decibels or more of laughter than the comedian that went before you, you were funnier that night. If that keeps happening, you are funny. And then just do it. Just try it. It's like a bungee jump. You don't have to enjoy it, but it's something you've done. I've been following your work for a while, so I, I, I know the answer. But for anyone that might be out there living under a rock yeah. and hasn't, what sort of inspires your material? Uh, I'm a, definitely an autobiographical um, comedian for the, the live stuff. Uh, if you come and pay top money and come and see me in a show, that's why I hold back the sort of what's called evergreen stuff that I could tell at any time. Stuff about my dad, my mum, Lindsay, funny shit that's happened to me if I've gone out and something humiliating's happened. I very rarely change the details. I very rarely change names. It's all true. I just make it funny and find structure within it and reshape it maybe and drop out bits that meander. But ultimately, I'm pretty autobiographical. Um, I would say 70% of the show. The next... 30% is what I call ob observational humour. But I'm a sociologically observational comedian. I wish I wasn't. I wish I was more, you know, when a cue is in Tesco's, how annoying is it when the person pushes it? I wish I could think of more stuff like that, but I don't. My observations are more like, have you ever noticed how pathetic couples are who pretend to be in love by posting constant couple selfies, thereby masking the fact their relationship's fuck, fucked? Which would be you the put up recently and I was right. cracking up because, you know, what? I've been thinking that for so long. It's such bullshit and it makes me want to throw right. up. <laughs> it's very it's very funny in the, in the right hands, my hands. So, yeah. so it's, that's actually observational humour, but I observe sex, gender and sociology. I do 
tiny bits of political observation here and there when it crosses from the nerd boundary and sort of leaves Nish Kumar's grip. Uh, obviously, Brexit and pandemic, it's yeah. not really political. It's just it's the whole world or the whole country. Yeah. So I do talk about that a lot. But most of my observational stuff is, you know, couples who get to the point where they're comfortable where one poos in front of the other, for example, would be a great bit of observational material that is not observational in the sense of, you know, aeroplane food, what's that all about? But I have observed it and it's a universal thing. You're either a couple that's reached that level of bathroom comfort or you're not. And those two tribes don't understand each other. So it's very funny. I love binary division as well in comedy, artificial stuff uh, on in non-serious ways. So I don't like men be like, women be like, but I do like high energy people are like this, low energy people are like that. Mm. That's funny. So fake, fake binaries are very, very funny and it's easy to get passionate about because there's nothing at stake and we all know we take it with a pinch of salt when I say all Manchester people are like this and all Essex people are like that. But we still go along with it because it's a low risk binary thing to get angry about. Back to the food. How has your relationship with food been like sort of throughout your adult life? Um, the same, really. Incredibly passionate. But as both parents cooked when I eventually fell out with my dad when I was 19. When at the point when I had to go and save up for my own degree, I was living with my nan in her housing association flat. I mean, we had nothing. I didn't even have I had to stick pegs to the wall, They're like the little stick on hooks so that I could hang my clothes. In my book, I said it was like being ha- haunted by my own wardrobe at night with these sort of clothes ghosts on the wall. Yet everything cooked from scratch every night. It doesn't matter whether it was, if it was towed in the hole, you know, it would be real flour that had been whisked with a real whisk um, rather than a packet mix. If it was a spag bowl, it, was a, it wasn't like the, the Noors packet mix thing it would be the you it would be done the onions the garlic the tomatoes so that's all I've ever known so when I went to uni I was streets ahead of all the other kids I was able to save shit loads of money I only had 80 pounds a week to live on I'd saved it up but I was able to get from that base of onion garlic tomato you can go almost anywhere in the food kingdom around the world Mm. just to vary up the next bag of little mints you're going to have to eat um so I've always cooked when I'm on tour, if I if it's a three four day run, I will try if it, if it's in and they're mostly in winter tours because people don't go to the summer away in summer. I will try and prep at least three or four days in advance of stuff uh, in Tupperware, which I then heat at the theatre, and I can take back to my room and have it with a glass of wine. Uh, how do I keep my ingredients cold during the day? I use nature's fridge. I hang them out the hotel window. You're so you just you're so you're sort of like sustainable as well. <laughs> I just I like it. I like my own food. I, you get to my age and you start to think, right, uh, I've started life late because basically because of my economic background, let's not dress it up. I shouldn't have started stand up at 28. I should have started it at 21. I shouldn't have done my degree at 22. I should have done it at 18. We are where we are. How can I make sure I stay at least 10 to 15 years body younger than I am? Because I've got, I don't know. I mean, I'm doing very, very well. There's no doubt about it. But I've got another at least five years climbing me and I wouldn't mind five to 10 years at that ledge before I go down the other side. That means I need to keep my body at about 35. So to keep my body at 35, I have to eat my own food, not diet food, not low fat food, not low carb food, my own food that I know is in it, grass fed beef, proper olive oil, vegetables. I know where they've come from. So what do you eat before you go on and perform? I tend not to. I tend to have a big, the big feed is afterwards. 
I'll have two okay. big feeds a day. One will be about 1 p.m., 2 p.m. It's enough time for the food to completely settle. So I'm almost hungry again by the time I go mm. on at 8 p.m. I have to go on hungry. Anyone who's ever done fasting on purpose or by accident, as I live it in my life, due to the, the delicious di- busyness of my diary, will know you get a kind of sort of focused, wild, super concentrated feeling, which is brilliant for stand up. So plenty of stand-ups eat a massive sandwich before they go on. I don't know how they do it. So I will have a coffee. Sometimes I'll have a, like a Nepalese-style coffee, which is coffee with butter in, just so I'm getting some calories in me. Not because I'm doing some weird high-fat diet. It's just an easy way to stick 300 calories in your body and not feel heavy afterwards. Um, so sometimes I'll do that. I might have a, some a, like a, a healthy bit of toast with some peanut butter on about 6, 7 p.m. or some fruit. But ultimately the big feeds at 2 p.m. Mm. and then another mo- a monster at about half 10, 11, if I'm gigging. Okay, so I mentioned in the intro that you have this new, because you, you, you've had a podcast, but you've renamed it Man Baggage, which is all Correct. about why men are just basically so shit at dealing <laughs> with their own baggage and their own feelings. Why are men so shit at talking about their feelings? Um, part, I would imagine it's 90% conditioning, um, in the same way that it's, it is with, um, women, it's 90% of the conditioning is it's okay to share and discuss. Um, the reason I think this is areas in the world where there's like sort of geographical quirks where men can't isolate themselves, say, I don't know, a community that lives on a mountainside, for example, um, where it's really hard for the men in their 70s and 80s to sit in on their own. They just can't. There's nanas and nieces and nephews. The age, the longevity differential disappears between men and women. It's a very curious thing. It happens in some parts of Japan, some parts of Italy. I'm sure it happens in other parts of the globe and with other tribes. But broadly speaking, when men can't sit in the miserable corner not talking to anyone, they no longer die five years earlier than the females in their community of all causes. So we're not just talking about suicide and serious health issues. We're talking about there is a cardiovascular and neurological, i.e. dementia preventing, benefit of face-to-face physical contact. No one understands how it works, um, but we know that if a nana goes into a nursing home, for example, if she's visited every day, even if she's completely lost dementia, she will outlive the other nana visited every day lost to dementia who isn't visited so something about touch contact breath heat someone in the room which is why this pandemic so bloody dangerous Mm -hmm. literally fights off dementia plaque or cardio uh, you know atherosclerosis can't say it plaque sclerotic plaque i mean it's that serious so that's why i think men have so many more heart attacks mixed with shit diets is there's something whether it's in men naturally like testosterone depleting and things like that and and me feeling a difference in my energy between when I'm young and old or whether it's what we're taught whatever it is men are much better at keeping quiet and isolating themselves in the corner and that is deadly it's deadly from a health point of view it's deadly from a mental health point of view suicide and it tracks in the most ugly but symmetrical pattern with male cancers I mean, testicular cancer has got to be one of the most least deadly cancers on the planet in that it's a lump that hangs off a lump that's hanging off your body. I mean, how easy do you want it, guys? You never keep your hands off your fucking nuts for most of your life. 
Um, but men's cancers are the same as men's mental health issues. If they can not yeah. talk about it, not share, not get it inspected, they will. So, of course, all these men that die of prostate and testicular cancer, it's ridiculous. It's not like pancreatic cancer is there to be found. But as you said, it is this conditioning thing because it's that whole like macho thing, isn't it? You know, men don't cry, don't show your emotions, don't show vulnerability, don't go to the doctor because it's all fine. I can sort it out. That's kind of exactly. why we're here, where we are, you know, dealing with this stuff. Exactly. And then, of course, the, there's the unfashionable possibility, which I'm not saying cancelers, but you at least I think we're allowed to consider scientific possibilities at time of recording without being cancelled, that men and women might be made hormonally different. I mean, we can't we can't oh, we just they, I, we just they but that, that mm. might have an impact on how we communicate. It just 100%. might. And I, I hate saying that. I'm, I'm like old school sociologist, no. gender constructed. But there might be something in men that makes them want to grunt and keep things in. It's probably off the back of some evolutionary thing. We're back in the day. If we're a tribe of 50 men and 50 women and there's another tribe of 50 men and 50 women opposite. If your tribe has the men with less empathy who keep quiet, who do you think is going to be better at defending <laughs> the boundary? Yeah. Yeah. The men with less empathy who are mm. going to hit the other man with a club and not feel bad afterwards. It probably is as fucking basic as that. Mm. But evolution and genetics is not destiny. We can get beyond it with a bit of work. Could I give you a few guys' numbers that I know who I, if you could just <laughs> chat to them? <laughs> so, so my, my, the, reason, the reason for my, pod, my, my uh, Man Baggage podcast was that there's a massive movement in the last five years where finally women don't shut men down who want to talk about men's issues there was a horrible moment about five seven years ago where if you said okay but men have got this suit oh come on men have had it fine for a thousand years give it up you fucking incel gammon uh, men don't have issues women haven't even got equal pay what about rape and you're like okay fine we'll just carry on killing ourselves we don't have any issues and we better not discuss them finally the pennies dropped we including with uh feminist so i consider myself a strong ally and one that if you do not fix men you will not fix society and ergo feminism will always struggle until we fix these neanderthal fucking traits in men you're always going to have club holding men who want to earn more money unless you mm. than women unless you fix men it's mm. the two things aren't either or they need to work in synergy and uh what i realized it was great and it's Someone lit the touch paper and we now talk about it and men's suicide and men's body dysmorphia and blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff of educated degree level men in their cardigans, dipping their rich tea biscuits, attending courses. Great. I'm happy for you, Ollie, uh, Ollie and his mates. Meanwhile, Dave, Ollie. Gary and Tyler's find all that shit cringy as fuck and they've got no one to talk to. Yeah. So I, my, my insight was wrapped in sort of banter and the WhatsApp atmosphere of here's a bit of goat porn, but how's Dave's marriage, which is basically what a man's WhatsApp group is. I thought maybe we could get to areas other places can't. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just trying to deal with the fact that you used Ollie because like, that was actually a very good name to use <laughs> to describe yeah, right. that particular person. Um, it's always <laughs> an Ollie. <laughs> Um, but, I mean, so you have to you have to trick you have to trick the insight yeah. out with a bit of laughter and yeah. and, and normal, not not sexist when I'm recording. But the reality is, in real life, if you want to get Terry and Gary and Dave the Tyler's to speak about women, you need to be a bit unfashionable and misogynistic first. Then the guard drops, yeah. and then the emotions come out. I'm sorry if that's distasteful to hear, but that's the way it no, works. No, 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 but it is. It's, it's, it's literally, shit. but it's literally and figuratively saying you kind of need to speak their language 
for them to kind of like access what you're really wanting to talk about. So I think it's a very clever way of doing it. Speaking of um, sort of you touched on a couple of things. There's one particular thing that you do that has absolutely I was crying with laughter recently is your persona, Gary Football. (laughs) Now, that's a new one. It is a new one. And he is. He's a fucking legend when he was completely and utterly wired up trying to do all of his um, (laughs) exercise. Like what? Like why? What what was the inspiration behind that? Well, I mean, I kind of get why it was an inspiration, but. I do, I do about I, I very often do characters for about a week and then get bored. I'm just I'm not a character comic. I don't have what it takes to persist. I'm too interested in stand up and being myself. So I never I never finish those things, sadly. But uh, I do think there's a place for satirizing properly the type of masculinity we want to get rid of. But when it's done, and I know I have been to university, but when it's been done by like a Russell group pardon the pun, or an Oxbridge-type comic. It leaves a sour taste if I know your mm. real name is, um, you know, Daniel, and you went to, uh, you know, Gonville and Keys College and you're satirising working-class masculinity. It's yeah. sneering. But because that I come from that, I'm hardly that. I hate football and, uh, you know, I don't have any man skills. But nonetheless, it's my first language is, is moron and chav. I'm fluent in both. Um, I feel like satire of oneself or one's own culture is a clever way to tackle the problems within it. So I have no problem with absolutely ripping into what a lot of the people I grew up with are like, and they t- they take it from me as well. And I think if just a few guys think, shit, am I like that? It- it's job done. Um, mm. So it- it's just this sort of hyper aggressive Coke snorting football loving masculinity that, a certain type, sadly, of girl or where I grew up is attracted to. I just t- take the piss out of it until it goes away. That's my approach with most things, including my whole life. <laughs> like we were working with bullies at school, just take the piss out of things till it, it goes away. And it works. Once something becomes laughable, it becomes less powerful, I think. It's mm. like putting glitter on a monster. I love mm. to throw glitter on a monster and it's still chasing after you, but ultimately it's got glitter on it and it does look a bit ridiculous. Gary's great. Oh, I might bring him back then. If no, just bring that. him back. Just like, maybe just a couple more. Just a couple more. Just to see me through the next few weeks. Be great. <laughs> <laughs> back to the food. Obviously, you're incredibly passionate. What aside from you know all your incredible sort of Bangladeshi, Indian, mm. Southeast Asian food, what are some of your other specialities at home when you are cooking? Uh, well, I'd say the thing I struggle with is what they call on Famalam um, white people chicken. Uh, I re- I don't know if you ever watch Famalam. It's a sketch show. It's really good. It's on BBC Three. It's comedians from well, lots of backgrounds: British, African, Jamaican, whatever. Um, so there's this really funny sketch called um, White People Chicken. Check it if you're into food. Please look up the White People Chicken sketch. It's with one of my favourite actors playing the chef. He's like, today we're gonna, we got we got a tree here. We've got some Scotch bonnet peppers. We've got some Caribbean curry powder. We won't need any of those. Pop those in the cupboard because today we're making White People Chicken, and they serve the chicken really beige. And I just the yeah. thought of that be, being me fills me with horror. Um, so I struggle to cook plain food and i know there's a place for it i really you know just a nice seared steak or yeah i'm just, I'm just defrosting a bit of haddock to have my, my lunch after this it's a beautiful it's wild caught haddock that's died to feed me i should show it the respect of some olive and lemon juice and salt and pepper but i know what's going to happen 
There's jer- minimums happening. Jerk seasoning on that minimum, and I know that because in the stock pot bubbling away, I've got some farro grain with Scotch bonnets and tomato puree in there, and uh, some Caribbean curry powders. There's no way I'm going to serve plain ass haddock with that. I will jerk the fish up. I don't even know if you're allowed to jerk fish, but I am going oh, you, to. No, I'm in you my can, own You can jerk fish. Definitely. I will do what I like. Um, so I am a, become a bit addicted to flavour. So any country that has flavour and punch. I love cooking it style, Indonesian, Thai, Caribbean, um, flavors like that. I'm less good on the more boring stuff. Not bad in Italian because it's, yes, there's no spice, but there's so much going on. And when you do go out, where are some of your favorite restaurants to eat at? Uh, I'm easily pleased on a cheat day. I mean, for me, if you're going to go burger and chips, Five Guys kicks it out of the park. The wonky burger, like something from the 1950s, the chips cooked in uh, peanut oil. It's just the best burger and chips ever. So if I'm going to go just cheat day, I will go there. Uh, I'm a big fan of, I don't, I'm not very loyal. I like to eat in lots of different places. So if we're abroad, drop a pin, go to TripAdvisor, where it's getting good reviews. Oh, my God, we've never eaten Indonesian out before. What's that all about? I'm an Ethiopian. What the fuck? Let's go and try it. So there'll be some of that. So uh, we're, I'm a very much like drop a pin TripAdvisor whore when I'm, when I'm abroad. And obviously in London, you just this it's criminal to eat in the same place twice. Yeah. I think. I agree. So I, 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 will, I love a posh meal where they collect your jacket. Uh, on May the 17th, the very first night you can eat indoors, Lindsay and I are going out and we're going gaucho, which if you don't know what it is, it's just a fantastic steak restaurant that's got what I call a proper cellar, two 300 quid bottles of wine if you're feeling a bit irresponsible. Um, and they just bring all the steak. It's just a steak journey if you're a carnivore. They bring out on the plate like an autopsy of a, a previous steak and tell you the story of why this cut tastes like that oh man okay i finish my conversations with a few quick fire questions my favorite snack of all time is a packet of crisps what (laughs) is your favorite flavor of crisps and why not a massive crisps eater since i ditched the old uh, junk food about eight years ago uh, I know you do get some really good hand hand cooked bespoke, you know, with a picture of a butcher on the front. But ultimately, it's probably got sunflower oil in it, which I think is just a bad move for the yeah. human body. Uh, but that said, on a cheat day, I eat what the fuck I like when I like, including cake for breakfast, and that would always be a ham and mustard crisp. I mean, to feel that mustard Ooh. kick through, you know, or a beef and mustard crisp because Lindsay doesn't okay. eat pork. I love that fire, the fire of the mustard again. It's the spice addiction. One of those thick, double-cooked, almost orangey type, you know, fat butcher on the front with a smiling face and a moustache. Is there a particular brand that does this flavour? No, they all do it now. It's it's like a trope okay. of posh crisps, isn't it? You'll see like the hearth in the background and a, a pencil drawing and it'll be a, bra- a brand you've never heard of. And it'll say locally made in blah, 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 Donovan's crisps or some bollocks. Like We all know it's made in a massive factory in Birmingham. but <laughs> With sunflower oil. Um, what is the craziest food you've ever eaten? Uh, when I was in Ljubljana in Slovenia, I had brain as a main course, thinking, you know, it's cow's brain. I wonder how they prepare it. it literally, like someone who just gone with a with a brain. Oh, wow. it, was, it was just it was brain on a fucking plate. So that was pretty crazy. Uh, I did a survival series called Stupid Man's Smartphone for Net. BBC and then it was on Netflix which is pretty much 
you know, after you've you know pulled the guts out of your own rabbit, you're going to eat. I, I had they made me try that awful fermented fish thing where there's all the videos of people throwing up online. It's actually illegal in the UK. It's illegal. Uh, it's it's only got cultural protection rights because of the EU. So it's a Swedish fermented fish thing. I mean, the smell is. It's hard to describe. Um, it's been allowed wow. to rot past the point where it's no longer dangerous, basically. Oh, my... Okay, and... It fills, it fills an outdoor space with stench. It's absolutely vile. It's inedible. You just throw up straight away. So that's probably the craziest thing I've ever put into my mouth that's food. Um, <laughs> but, um... Shh. No, but I will always, uh, for meat, meat-wise, if it's weird, I'll eat it. I won't. It tend to be quite bad if, if I've ever kept it as a pet. I wouldn't be able to like eat dog. I don't judge countries that eat dog. If dogs are food, you need to eat to feed your family. You eat dog. I don't do the snobbery thing, but I couldn't eat dog personally just because mm. of the emotional relationship to it. Uh, but horse, I've had horse meat pizza in France. I chose it because it said horse, because it was weird, because it was different. Um, ostrich. Zebra when I was in, where were we? Kenya. Yes, I had a zebra, zebra steak. Yeah, we went to a meat restaurant where they showed, sold all like legal sort of bush foods. It'd be zebra or uh, maybe not giraffe. I don't think that's legal, but zebra was legal. Um, ostrich, things like that. Wow. Okay. What has been your most memorable meal? Probably the night I proposed to Lindsay, what we did was it was we just completed on the house. It was one of those houses that needed, you know, fucking ninety hundred grand worth of work. It was fucked. Yeah. Uh, but it was so the night before the builders started, we went into the horrible old lounge as it was, and the kitchen hadn't yet been ripped out, and we hired a private chef um, oh. to work in that kitchen. Bless him. Uh, to cook us this amazing three-course meal. Nothing um, outrageous, just your bog-standard, you know, your, your nice sort of savoury mousse starter, it's just steak, good vegetables, and a, and a chocolate, melting chocolate dessert, all the things you would expect. Uh, but the fact it was, I think I don't think I've ever had it. That's the one and only time I've hired a private chef at home. Um, and then, of course, the surprise was it wasn't an extra condiment on the dessert, and then the ring was in there, and I, pro- I proposed. So that I would say, you know, food is not just about fuel and eating and flavor experiences sometimes it's about the event as well Completely. so that one that one's got to be that one's got to be up there oh, I love that, that it's very romantic that and when i did a corporate gig in dubai i've only ever done one if you don't know what a corporate gig is it's the way comedians can earn decent money and handing out awards and i had it was a very high pressure audience the audience got people from saudi arabia in it lebanese people lots of people from arabic countries british people american people and the do dubai police they're making sure you can't even say the word pork on stage it's literally you know it's that strict the material you can and can't talk about so it's a high pressure night can't swear can't talk about sex can't talk about religion can't talk about politics can't say the word pork easy to end up in prison in dubai so I'd done really well, and then there's a there was a break after the stressful stand-up bit before I did the easy bit where I handed out the awards where you don't need a brain. And they laid a table for us backstage. And if you imagine the biggest, longest function room of a posh hotel, so sort of getting on for half a football pitch in size with all the rich carpet, with one sort of comically small, beautifully laid table with all sort of gold and silver cutlery and three waiters who just sat at the edge facing the wall and just came in like ghosts and waited on us it's a work dinner but i've never ex- it's the closest i've ever felt to being like royalty or something yeah. it was crazy I'd, we had three people waiting on us and you know how over the top it is everything's over the top in dubai anyway i mean it's just crazy it really sticks in my mind 
What food sums up happiness for you? Curry. Chicken tikka biryani. With it. But but the vegetable curry sauce you get on the side would be done in the Danzac style. So it's it's a yes, it's just a because if you don't want chicken biryanis, it's the rice and chicken tikka all mixed together and steamed through with the ghee. And you'd normally get like a sometimes just a wet curry sauce, sometimes a vegetable curry. But to get that done Danzac style, that's everything I love in the world. So got the sweet lentils on top. That's just happiness food to me. Takeaways are a dirty, dirty takeaway where the yellow oil has come through the bag and you're so hungry and excited to open it. <laughs> oh god final question live to eat or eat to live the two don't need to be opposites in my opinion a, sh- a short education in nutrition and you can live to eat and everything you eat will make you live the problem with live to eat is if you take it purely you end up in biscuits and I don't have any other pleasures in my life I don't take drugs so you know what I mean I am gonna have a cake it's my pleasure well, okay you're dead at 55 and you don't get to walk your daughter down the aisle no thanks so I just refuse to do that because I've started my family late I've started my but I won't give up things I won't give up fat I won't give up olive oil I won't give up carbs so just educate yourself about what are the good versions of all the things you think are naughty ditch the junk food and you can do both Every meal time and every ingredient is, a, is can be a thing to celebrate. But when you put it on the table, you're not getting, oh, I better not eat that because I don't want a tummy. You won't have a tummy if you eat mm. properly. Russell for president, I say. Uh, <laughs> Russell, thank you so, so much for coming on. Please follow Russell on social media at Russell underscore Kane. Until next time, guys. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time. Bye.